chapter 10, um, as we continue each week through the Gospel of Mark um, to see Jesus lay out this good news of a better kingdom. Uh, And I feel like that's really accentuated this morning in the passage that we're going to be reading from Mark chapter 10. We've been been kind of comparing and contrasting through our time uh, going through Mark's gospel of, um, you know, kind of the the kingdom of this world and all of the brokenness that comes along with it, although it was not initially intended to be that way, right? Sin has marred um, and, 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 uh, and affected everything that we see and feel and experience. Um, And we see Jesus uh, throughout the gospel of Mark bringing this good news of a uh, of a redeemed kingdom, right? A, a better kingdom. Um, all the things and all, all the ways that this world um, is incapable of satisfying us, we find that satisfaction in Christ and it's in, in his kingdom. And so um, that's what we continue to see each week. And we get a humongous dose of that this morning um, as we look at the difficulty and worth of discipleship. We see um, this, this encounter between Jesus and a rich young man, a rich young ruler, probably a, a passage that is familiar to some of you in this room. Um, and for those of you uh, who it is not familiar to, man, it is going to be legit. It's a great, great, great story. So um, I'm excited to walk through it with you guys this morning. We see throughout this passage in Mark, beginning in um, chapter 10, verse 17 through verse 31, just this, this call to surrender to Christ, right? To surrender to Christ and to take possession of the kingdom, to enjoy the now um, and to long for the eternal. We see, um, we see the effect of uh, the news of an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that we are longing for in our hearts and in our being and in our existence as it is brought to fruition in Christ. We see that it informs the way that we live in the now, right? Um, it, it's kind of like this, that um, for the Christian, um, eternity is before us and we, we have this picture of a world world and an existence absent of sin in which we are with Christ worshiping and enjoying him and all of his benefits forever. We're going to talk a lot about eternity. There's a lot of eternal language that we see in our passage this morning, but man, here's the deal, right? That in light of what we have to look forward to in eternity future, that there is this hope, right? Um, That we live in now, right? Our hope for eternity drastically affects the way that we live and experience and move in the here and now. Does that make sense? Right? That that for the Christian, we get eternity and we get this life in the deal. Right? That that's kind of the way that it plays itself out. That's the way that it works itself out. And so that's what we're going to see this morning as we look at Mark 10, beginning in verse 17. This rich young man and a pronouncement story. There's a very small section that we're going to come to here in our passage this morning, and it speaks of God's love, the love of Christ toward the rich young ruler in the midst of his rebellion, in the midst of what is a a, a somewhat disappointing passage in light of the rich young ruler's response to the words of Jesus. We see a pronouncement story that Jesus loves and pursues after and communicates hard truths to sinful people in order that by the power of the Spirit and the good news of the gospel, this kingdom, right, 
that we are welcomed into and that we enjoy citizenship in, in light of who Christ is and what he has done for us upon the cross, we see God's love displayed towards sinners. And there's a challenging call. There's a challenging call um, from Jesus toward the rich young man, but it is out of a heart of love. It's out of a, of a countenance of love that Jesus communicates these hard truths, both to the rich young ruler here in this passage in the context of Mark 10, but also to you and I right here in 2017 in Carrollton, Georgia. And so let's, let's tune in, man. Here we go. Uh, Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. It says this, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? And so it's a bit of a confusing statement by Jesus there that we're going to spend a little bit of time addressing. I don't think it's a hard issue to address, though, but it is there. No one is good except God alone. The context is really going to help us understand what Jesus is saying here. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father. And mother, verse 20, and he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Holy cow, really impressive, right? Verse 21, and Jesus looking at him, here it is, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So how will he respond? Well, we see in verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything, brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life, verse 31. But many who are first, and this is a familiar passage. We've seen this over the last few weeks as we've gone through Mark. But many who are first will be last and the last first. 
And so we see this great reversal, don't we? Hey, let's pray together. Father, thank you for um, your word and for time together this morning to um, just worship you and to acknowledge through song and through um, just our cooperative reading together who you are and what you have done. We pray that these truths would encourage us as you call our hearts this morning uh, into greater intimacy with yourself. Give us obedience and a desire to follow after you. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. And so last week, we saw a massively important statement from Jesus to his disciples. This is in verse 15 of what we saw last week. I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. You see, we saw last week Jesus emphasizing the necessity of helpless dependence, right? The posture of a child and a recognition of our sinful state for entrance into the kingdom, this truer and better kingdom that we've spent a little bit of time this morning referencing. All of this as necessity for our salvation. This week, in this passage, we see a young man who stands in stark contrast to the self-admitting dependent children that we saw in last week's passage. He is not low or, 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 or humble, recognizing his own need and sin, but instead he is affluent. Right? He's, he's powerful, he is aggressive, and he is self-assured. He has every resource at his disposal, and he's young, right? Which is an incredible resource in and of itself. All of this produces a very unique challenge in light of the posture, the approach that Jesus demands in verses 13 through 16 from what we saw from what we saw uh, earlier. And so three observations that we're going to make this morning about this passage. Follow along. If you take notes, this is a great thing for you to write down. We are huge fans of notes here, right? And so if you have a pen um, and a piece of paper, make a note of this. The love of Christ produces a challenging call. We see that in verses 17 through 26. Right, that the love of Christ produces a challenging call. We're going to spend a lot of time looking at this point this morning. We're going to camp out there for, for quite a, a bit of time. Number two, the commitment of God produces a transformed perspective. We see that it's God's commitment to the redemption, to the salvation of sinners that creates within us a transformed perspective. We are reliant on God for our perceptions to be transformed, for our perceptives to be transformed. And finally, number three, we see the reward for the repentant is sure. Right, that there is a sure reward for repentant sinners in light of, get this, Christ's commitment and God's covenant. That it all flows back and it all brings us back to who God is, to who Christ is, and what he has accomplished upon the cross. And how we benefit 
from his obedience and from his self-sacrifice and how the obedience of Christ and the self-sacrifice of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, produces within us a transformed perception of our lives and what we have to look forward to on into um, eternity, which we're going to spend a lot of time talking about eternal language. There is a lot here, man. There's a lot here. Earlier this week, I was like, there's no way we're getting through point one, Uh, but we are committed. And here we go. We're going to do it. Uh, quite a quite a road before us, and so let's begin. Number one, the love of Christ produces a challenging call. The love of Christ produces a challenging call. You see, Jesus is here as we intercept him this morning on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and if we step back and we observe the much larger picture of what's going on here, we know that he is on his way to the cross. And Mark does an incredible job emphasizing this point in verse 17 before recording Jesus' encounter with the self-perceived, self-sustaining ruler of Mark chapter 10. We, we get a lot of help from other, uh, from other gospel writers to help us understand the character of the rich young ruler. We can say he is young based on what we see in Matthew 19. Matthew emphasizes the age of the ruler. And we know that he's affluent, that he's, that he's privileged, and that he's powerful based on what we see in Luke 18, 18. And we see in Mark 10 that this young, affluent, rich ruler is eager to talk with Jesus to the point that he runs up to Jesus in order to engage him in conversation. In verse 17, Mark says that he falls down in front of him. And so we get this picture of this young man running up to Jesus who is on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to the cross, and he falls down before Jesus. Perhaps he had heard Jesus' message from other people as word is spreading throughout the region and regions about what Jesus is doing and saying. Perhaps he's, he's heard the message of Jesus and believes himself to have begun grasping its implications. And so what does this look like? What is the message of Jesus? And how might the rich young ruler have understood or perceived that which Jesus has been saying up until this point? Well, he's perhaps getting this idea that observance of God's law is in some way, in some form, fashion, inadequate for entrance into Christ's kingdom. And so he asks him in verse 17, good teacher, all of the things that we've heard, And all the things that I have heard and observed, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's his question, and it's a big one. And I think there's a lot here uh, that is beneficial for you and, and I this morning. I want us to consider this man's language choice. I want us to dissect his language. I want us to dissect his question and seek to understand it uh, a little more deeply because I think it's, it's interesting, and it's interesting for a number of reasons. And so let's, uh, let's just uh, address first his word choice. Okay, let's address his word choice. We see this is a, a detail that has led many 
many commentators and, and Bible scholars to conclude that this man's wealth was obtained as a result of the death of another. That he himself, where he is in this season of life, is wealthy, and some of his affluence that he possesses is a result of inheriting something from a relative who had passed away. And so he asks Jesus about an inheritance. A man familiar with inheritance, asking Jesus about an inheritance and saying that he desires to take possession of this gift that is eternal life, which we will uh, need to define a little further, and we will in just a moment. But it's, it's really interesting to note that which he desires to take possession of apparently, based on his approach to Jesus, exists entirely outside of himself. Let me say it another way. This guy is young, he's affluent, he's powerful, he's a ruler. That's the way he's described as we kind of bounce around different gospel accounts. And yet he runs up to Jesus and he casts himself at the feet of Jesus in verse 17 and begins to ask him what he must do in order to inherit eternal life. It would appear as though there is a recognition on his part that that which he desires to take possession of exists entirely outside of himself. It is something that for some reason he desires and believes that Jesus is able to direct him toward. Does this make sense? Are we together so far, right? He he desires to take possession of that which he is obviously embracing that he is unable to possess uh, apart from the intervention and the work of of another. All of this appears to indicate that he understands this inheritance to be something that's possessed by someone else. Because if you ask for an inheritance, you are saying, in essence, that I am desiring something that is yours, right? Uh, uh, Perhaps you've been familiar with will-type language, right? I know a couple of years ago, my grandparents um, wanted to sit down and have a conversation with me about their will, which is just like a really weird conversation anyway, right? Like it's just – I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Maybe you've experienced it. I don't know. If not – Prepare yourselves, right? Because it's kind of it's kind of strange. It's a little bit strange to have that type of conversation. But they're telling you about, they're telling me about that which they possess that they desire to pass on to me. And so by nature of the question, it seems as though there is this realization from the rich young ruler that he is desiring possession of something that is to be given to him. Right, that, that he desires to inherit, to take possession of from someone else, from somewhere else, something that he's incapable of bringing, of bringing into his own possession, in and of him, in and of himself. So that's part one. Part two relates to the type of life that he questions Jesus. About There's this realization, right, that the type of life that he desires, just based on what we've already set up into this point, is to be given, right? It's to be given from one to another, okay? And then we get into, uh, and then we get into a little bit more of the language that the man chooses to 
use. Now, if you're anything like me and you start hearing like eternal terminology, right, like uh, eternity and eternal things, um, you immediately begin to equate it with a, 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 a piece of time. Right. Let me let me give this a couple of examples. Okay. Um, right now, there is a ton of traffic uh, in downtown Carrollton because of all the construction that they're doing. Right. Anybody driven through there? Had to get your car realigned yet? Like you probably ride behind me. I think I'm first. Right. And so um, there is this uh, there is this this construction downtown um, right now that produces what was an already chaotic scene around noon in the square is now even more chaotic, and it seems as though to go from one side of town to the other if you're going to the square is going to take you how long an eternity right and it's going to take you an eternity to to get through right if you've ever been in a a meeting or a class right a lecture class perhaps or a meeting with a boss or a co-worker and you're just sitting there you're going man this is incredibly boring, right? I have a lot that I could be doing. And this meeting, this class, seems as though it has lasted an eternity, right? And we've already, uh, we've already referenced tonight's events, the Falcons and the, and the Patriots. If you were here with us last year and watched me weep in the floor right about where Hunter is, um, you would know that the last nine minutes of last year's Super Bowl felt like an eternity, Right, And so we typically equate eternal language with a period of time. What we find in light of this man's question, however, is that it's not so much correlates, uh, well, not entirely correlates with, with, with quantity, but quality. Right, that it's not so much about time, although there is an element of that there, but there's, there's something about the quality of life that he's asking, that he's addressing Jesus about, about here. Let's say this another way. You see, our tendency in considering this man's question might be to understand the eternal life that he is asking about as a never-ending life. Consisting entirely of a length of time. His question then is essentially, what do I have to do to what? To live forever. What I'm saying is that there is an element of this question that reflects a desire to receive a quality of life that has escaped his grasp. Now, that is a massive statement considering all the contextual information that we already have about this young ruler, right? What quality of life would be lacking for for this guy, right? It seems as though he has the world at his disposal, all available resources. And yet when he asks this question, it reflects not only uh, the quality of the the quantity of time, the length of time, but the quality of time, that uh, that which reflects the type of life that is to be lived, right? That there's something that's lacking. Here's the point. There's something that's lacking from his current experience, despite all of his resources, that he's come to Jesus asking question about. There's a recognition by this young man that the resources at his disposal have failed to bring him the quality of life and the satisfaction 
that his heart longs for. And I had a really interesting conversation on the square this past week with a, with a friend of mine who's coming in, becoming an even better friend of mine who is not a Christian, in which we talked a lot about this. In fact, I, I preached this sermon to him first. <laughs> after I preached it to myself, right? And then I'm telling him, and I'm like, you're getting all of Sunday because what we're talking about and what we're engaging in right now is exactly what we see in Mark 10 from the rich young ruler. This realization that the things of this world are incapable of satisfying our hearts in the way that we desire and expect them to, right? You see, sin has tainted our affection. Sin has tainted our longings. And sin seeks to convince us that the quality of life that we long for can be found in the things of this world. Only at the same time, it always seems just beyond the horizon. Are you guys with me? Right. What we learn from the rich young ruler is that the satisfaction that we find in the things of the world apart from a gospel-informed understanding are incapable of meeting our expectations. They will not satisfy. We, we can compare them with this. Uh, I'm going to borrow from a, a hiking illustration, right, for, for the outdoorsmen among us, right? Uh, like false summons. Okay, if you've ever been hiking, maybe you've been in North Georgia, it's a great time of year to go, right? It's fall time, the leaves are beginning to change, everybody's busting out their boots and dusting those things off. You don't have to worry so much about the mosquitoes anymore, and you can frolic through the mountains and enjoy all of the scenery, right? But say you're hiking up a, a, a mountain, right? And as you're hiking, you look before you and you say, how much longer it feels like we've been hiking for? An eternity, right? Yeah, you guys are with me now. Okay, so it feels like we've been hiking forever, right? How, where is the top of this mountain that we're going to? And you look ahead and you go, it's right up here, right? It's right before us. I can see the top. Keep going. And so you, you hike and your head's down and you're gasping for air. You feel like you might fall over, pass out, and probably die at this point, right? And then you get there and you realize, and this isn't the top. Right, this, actually, this isn't the summit. Like it looked like it was from, from where I was positioned as I looked ahead. It looked like that was the top, but, it, but it's not. And so you stand there and you contemplate just rolling back down the mountain to the car, right? And, and then you look up and you say, oh, no, it's, it's right there. We can see it now. That's it. So you hike on. You get there. Long story short, you realize it's not, it's not the top. So you, you look again, you find, okay, we keep going, you keep going. This is, this is the way that we live our lives, right? This is the satisfaction that the world produces within us. It's incapable of, of, of sustaining us for any real length of time. We take possession of that which we believe will bring satisfaction to our lives, that which will bring a, an element of, of sufficiency to our lives that will make us happy, that will, uh, that will, that will finally, you know, meet our expectations and what do we find well no those things didn't do that right it's a it's a it's a high school degree and then a, or maybe a car boyfriend girlfriend degree going off to college graduating college finding a spouse having children getting rid of children right like it's it's just like it's always it's always something else that is supposed to produce within us this 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 feeling of satisfaction and that we finally made it only it never does. This is what the rich young ruler is dealing with here. 
right? There's this, there's this recognition from him that there is something more, right? That there is something more, that there must be something that's capable of satisfying the longings of our hearts. It has not been the things of this world because I have everything at my disposal and they have failed to meet my expectations. They have failed to satisfy me in a way to where I can look back and go, yes, I have obtained the quality of life that I desire. If you're not in that place yet, just hang around. You will be, right? But, but I would venture to guess that you can look back on past experiences, as can I, and say, yes, the things of this world are incapable of satisfying us. You see, the quality of life that this man desires has gone, despite all of the resources at his disposal, unattained. And so what does he do? Well, we see in verse 17, he goes to Jesus, believing that he might have the answers that his heart longs for. Isn't it interesting, right, that this, this, it appears as though this man has come to the end of himself, despite all of the, all of the things that he has around him. And yet he, he now, he runs to Jesus, right? He runs to, to Jesus. Only... Jesus begins by pushing back a little as it relates to his approach. Look with me at verse 18. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And we ask this question, what in the world is Jesus doing here? Or what is, he, what is he referring to? What is he implying through this statement? Well, Jesus is probing. Jesus is testing. He's he's probing this man's understanding of who he is, he being Jesus, not as though he doesn't already know what he's thinking, but to, in a way, expose his thoughts for him. Jesus knows and he understands the posture of the man's heart and mind. He knows exactly what he's thinking. And so here, in an act of grace, he invites him into this understanding. I'm going to ask you a question and we're going to begin dialoguing about it in order that you might grow in a deeper knowledge and understanding of who you think that I am. You see, the Bible makes it clear And they would have been familiar with this. Those that are engaged in this conversation would have been familiar with this, that God alone is considered good. Listen to what the psalmist writes in Psalm 118, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endured forever. The psalmist writes something very similar in Psalm 145, verse 9. The Lord is Good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Contextually, it would have been unusual to ascribe this character trait to anyone other than God. And so, what is Jesus doing here? He is not denying his goodness. Right? He, is, he is not denying his deity, but he is instead challenging the young man's statement about who he understands him to be. And then he continues. And so do we get that? Jesus isn't saying, I am not good. Why are you calling me good? I'm not good. Jesus must be good. 
right? Otherwise, we look at his work upon the cross and all of the benefits that you and I experience as his followers, casting ourselves upon his finished work, and we say that it is null and void. Apart from the goodness, the, the perfect goodness and obedience and faith of Christ, you and I do not experience the benefit of relationship with God. It hinges entirely on Christ being good. And so he's not denying his goodness here, right? But he is probing, he's challenging the young man to, to step out and to understand to a greater degree who he believes Jesus to be. And then he continues. Look with me at verse 19. How do we inherit eternal life? That's the question, right? You know the commandments. Do not murder. The sixth commandment. Do not commit adultery. The the seventh commandment. Do not steal. The eighth commandment. Do not bear false witness. The ninth commandment. Do not defraud, which is a play on the tenth commandment that you shall not covet. Fraud being especially dangerous for the wealthy and so lands really close to home here as it relates to the rich young ruler. And then finally, the fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother. And so Jesus here takes the time to draw this man's attention toward the law of the Lord and the righteous standard required to display a love for God and to possess kingdom citizenship, right? Do not murder. Only we see that this is expounded upon by Jesus in his ministry to include hate. That if we, if we look at a, a, another with hate in our heart, it's as though we have already murdered them. And so we're, 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 we're holding the, the rich young ruler and ourself up to this righteous standard that we believe to have understood. Don't murder. Okay, got it. But it's actually much, much more difficult than that to the degree that none of us are able to display obedience, perfect, sustained obedience to what God calls his people to, Right? And so you've got that, you've got do not commit adultery, again, expounded upon by Jesus to include lustful thought, again, guilty, right? Do not steal, but, but instead, right, when we consider what Jesus has to say about this and even what it means as God communicates it all the way back in Exodus as he delivers his statutes to his People encourages them towards a life of generosity informed by God's extreme generosity to us. And so it's not only don't steal, but it's what? Live lives of radical generosity that reflects my generosity extended to broken people, to sinners, right? And so we're, we're seeing this dude is like perfectly obedient. And we might believe ourselves to be at least like, man, I'm at least 80%. Like I've got to be batting that, right? And we're seeing. No. Oh, wait, wait, no, not there either. Okay, and we just keep going down the list. Do not bear false witness, but what? Instead, speak truth and hold out that which is right, etc., etc., etc. And we see that it is an impossibly high standard. It was never the law of the Lord. If we're at all confused about the purpose of God's law, let's clarify. Let's iron this out for just a moment. First of all, it was a gift of grace. Let's not be confused confused there. But in addition to that, the law was never intended to save us. Paul writes of this over and over and over and over again in the New Testament. Check out the book of Galatians. It is in 
incredible. And so what is the purpose of the law if it's not that which is to lead us into eternal life? Because the guy's question, again, hang with me, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you've heard the commandments. Oh, yeah, well, I've been perfectly obedient to all of those things. Oh, snap, really? Okay, well, let's, let's diagnose this a little bit more. Turns out, no, you haven't, and we haven't either. And so what is the hope of eternal life? What is the purpose of the law? The law, as Paul writes, is intended to break our hearts. The law confronts us with our inability and the lack of desire that exists within us to live in obedience to what God has said. The law exposes within us our need for grace and our need for a substitute, one who would live this righteous life for us and then die a a sinner's death for us, absorbing all of God's wrath due our rebellion so that we might, what's the question, inherit eternal life. All of this, the instruction that Christ provides, he accomplishes perfectly. Only in this instance, the young ruler does not see and then confess his need, but he instead presents his own righteousness, only to then seek further instruction, at which point we might believe that Jesus would just destroy this guy, right? And there's a degree to which he does, but not the same way that you and I would long to like to wreck this guy here. In verse 21, the heart and the motivation for the challenge of Jesus toward this man is presented. Look at what it says in verse 21. John chapter 10, verse 21. We've got a lot of context. And then we come here. And we see it says that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. What a picture of the gospel. Right, that God looks upon us in our helpless state while we run a rebel's race and extends love and grace and compassion. In the midst of, of great confusion and lostness, the the We see Jesus love the young ruler, and this love leads to a call from Christ toward radical self-sacrifice, this challenging call that is produced in light of the love of Christ. He said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. So how does he respond? We see in verse 22, he's disheartened by the saying, and he went away sorrowful. Why? Well, for he had great possessions. And so what can we say? Tune in with me here. What can we say about the love of Christ in light of this encounter that he engages in 
with the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. Well, we can say this, that the love of Christ produces a call to surrender. Right, that the love of Christ produces a call to surrender earthly possessions and in doing so, to embrace the heart of the law and a supreme delight that he alone provides. Only in this case, what do we notice? Well, we, we notice that the cost was deemed to be too great because the man leaves. He leaves this conversation with Jesus, not nearly as excited as he appeared to be in verse 17 when he showed up, but in fact now extremely disheartened. Broken spirit, broken will, likely shoulders slouched in the front, right? We know this posture. We understand what it, what it looks like. And all of this leads us to understand the man's failure to grasp the true intent of the law and the person of Christ, who is more valuable, the Bible tells us, than gold or silver. He could not and he would not. Submit to the difficult call of Christ, delivered out of a pure heart. Let us not question the heart of Christ. Let us not question the motive of Christ. It is sincere and it is pure and it is a perfect love, which Jesus calls this man to forsake those things that are incapable of providing him with that which he was searching for. He, he, he failed as we often fail to see the immediate impact of the words and the work of Jesus. And so we go into verse 23 and Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? There you go. Verse 23, wealthy people, (laughs) right? Sorry, guys, it's really going to be hard for you guys. Well, it's a little bit more than that, okay? And so hang with me. You're like, I don't have any money, so I don't have to worry about that. Verse 24. (laughs) And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Man, it's difficult, right? The, The way is narrow that leads into eternal life. The way is broad that leads to destruction, Jesus teaches on these things in a a handful of other places. It is easier, he says, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And so there's this contrast. There's a contrast that Jesus presents here in verses 23 through 26 between a camel, right? A very large, very familiar Palestinian animal, right? And one of the smallest openings, that of the eye of a needle. Now, if you go and you read what commentators have to say about this verse, there are those who believe that there was a place that was called the eye of a needle. It was a very small opening in a rock that you had to take all of your luggage and things off of your camel in order to get through. It was really tight. Listen, that's out there and it might be beneficial in some form or fashion. It certainly is a great illustration for the point that Jesus is making here, but I don't know that it's entirely true. Okay, there's no evidence that that is what Jesus is referencing as he, as he draws us back to this. And so let's not get lost in the illustration and seek to understand it to a greater degree than Jesus intended us to. What is Jesus saying here? 
What is this passage intended to indicate? Well, it's intended to indicate the impossibility of anyone entering the kingdom by doing something for himself or herself. As it relates to the rich young man, the monetary illustration and example works really well. But if you're in this room and you're not rich, guess what? You fall into the same trap that many of us fall into, that we all fall into. Seeking to present our righteous works before the Lord in order to bring ourselves back into right relationship with him. And the message that Jesus is sharing here is this, that that is not to happen, that it's not going to happen. That There's nothing that you can do to get oneself into the kingdom, whether you're relying on wealth or morality or your work. The message is the same. You cannot do it for yourself. And this is the story of every Christian. There's no way we're getting done with this passage today. But as I think about what we've already talked about this morning, I'm considering and I'm thinking back and I'm reflecting on a lot of our membership chats that we had this past week. And so the way we do membership here is this. For those of you that are unfamiliar, as you go through the class, we schedule what we are now referring to as a chat between myself and our external elder, Neil Aubrey, who's the pastor at Glenlock Baptist Church, our sending church, right, to, to sit down and to talk about the gospel and to hear your testimony and your experience in church membership. It sounds really scary, but it's not. And through the course of our conversations over the past week, we heard testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony of individuals being confronted with their inability to rescue themselves. Having adopted this mentality at some point, at some season along the way, only to in another season come to this realization that no, like I can't save myself. And this gospel, this good news of what Christ does for sinners is applicable to me. It doesn't matter if I grew up in church. Right? It doesn't matter if I was baptized when I was nine years old. It doesn't matter if I can uh, do all the, the Bible songs, B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me, right? It doesn't matter. Salvation is not resting upon our ability to accomplish anything. It's solely resting on the work of Jesus. And that is the message of Jesus here. If you seek to do it for yourself, man, there is no entrance. It would be easier for a camel to get through an eye of a needle or a rope to go through the eye of a needle. His love and grace, his pursuit of us in the midst of our rebellion from him. It was there all last week. I was reminded of it again and again and again as I heard your stories and I considered God's grace and work in my own life. And we see it here in this story, Christ's love and commitment to sinners, right? In this story, the rich young ruler chose money and he chose his possession. He chose that which the world had offered him over Jesus. You see, the idea of losing his upscale identity felt like too much to bear. But as the rich ruler ran into the arms of wealth, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Or Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And that's where we're going to stop. We're going to pick back up next week. And we're going to talk next week about the commitment 
of God and how that produces within us a transformed perspective. We've seen Christ's love. We've seen his commitment this morning, and we'll continue to expound upon that next week. And then we'll look at the reward for the repentant being sure that all of the satisfaction that this young man desired is ultimately found in Christ. And Jesus presented him with a challenging call in order to bring him to the end of himself that he might realize just that. That that which he desired was to be found in surrendering all of the false things of this world and running headlong into the arms of Christ who rescues us, who saves us, who sustains us, who grows us. He is committed to the work. And man, that is good news for all of God's people. And so ask yourself this morning, let's do inventory of our hearts. Am I relying on affluence? Am I relying on works? Am I relying on ability in order to realize right relationship with God? Or when God asks me what in you should produce, bring about entrance into the kingdom that we simply point to Christ. And we say it's what what Christ has done. Right, it's what Christ is done.